Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong. And I'm Nathan Taylor. Welcome to ArtsLink on CJSW, broadcasting from the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 lands and Métis Nation Region 3. So what do you have for us this month, Nathan? Well, Jenny, this month I'm going to revisit the 1960s works of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson's Super Marionation television programs, as well as a little-known 1970s film called The Noah. I have an interview with Makram Ayashi about his play The Green Line, which will play in Calgary from March 31st to April 9th at the Big Secret Theatre in Arts Commons. Here's my conversation with actor and playwright Makram Ayashi. My name is Jenny Kwong for ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Today I am with Makram Ayashi here to talk about his new play, The Green Line. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I guess uh, tell me how did the play start? Well, um, I-, I was really wondering about, uh, I was thinking at the time about intergenerational memory and how, how I, as, as a Lebanese person living in rural Alberta, I grew up in, in rural Alberta, how am I connected to my heritage in Lebanon? You know, and what is my love for my homeland? What is that in association to my love for my parents? And so it became an exploration of that, and the play um, uh, grew out of a desire to ask that question. How closely tied am I to Lebanon? And so what did you find out in the process of writing the play? <laughs> I mean, there's there's no solid answer. I, I think what I left with is feeling like... Um, I'm, I'm as tied to Lebanon as I as I wish to be, and as as I strengthen that relationship with my homeland and with my family and with my language and with my culture, that's what'll tie me there, and that's what'll keep me keep me uh, in an in a living culture. That I'm not trying to go back to some essential sense of being Arab or being Lebanese, but it's a living culture that I can be both Canadian, living on in in in, in Alberta and Lebanese and speaking Arabic, and speaking English, and I'm also queer, and I'm in between all those worlds, and that's also a way of living. That's a living culture that I could be. So tell me about the play. Uh, who are the main characters in the play? Sure, yeah. I, I The story follows uh, a Lebanese Canadian, not unlike myself, who is going back to Lebanon to bury his father, and he uh, that takes place in 2018, and he goes to a nightclub, a queer nightclub in Lebanon, and meets a drag queen, and they get to know each other. But simultaneously, we're seeing the events of 1978, where his father and and his father's sister are trying to survive the Lebanese Civil War. And his, his father's sister is falling in love with her classmate, a woman. And so both of those stories, you're seeing them unfold at the same time, and, and, and we're seeing how... Um, how memory braids together by the end of it. Um, well, I while growing up, I didn't really hear too much about the Le- uh, Lebanese Civil War, but mm-hmm. I did have, uh, I went to a diverse school, so like on a field trip or something, other students would talk about it, but I, I would just overhear them talking about it, and that's yeah. how I yeah. heard about it at that time. That was in the 90s when I was in high school. But I right. guess how does... Um, how do the stories 
what were the stories that you heard growing up about mm. the Civil War? Yeah, I mean, for for my my parents' generation, there's the kind of thing that's like it's like the war happened and it ended and everyone forgot about it. And I think my generation is is eager to think about it and to remember it, so we could reconcile some of what what could have been learned during that time. But I mean, my family, you know, the war went from 1975 to 1990. Is the the dates the historical dates of it, and my parents lived through all of that. My mom was studying in school, studying law school. My dad was not in school, but he was involved and engaged in the war in some capacity. And and you know, writing the play, I I was able to hear a lot of their stories and share with a lot of and and it's not we we would organically tell stories at home. It's not like I was researching for the play when I was writing it. So it was. It was a bit of um, a, a bit of familiar territory for me, but the war also feels very. It, it felt more distant when I wrote it, but after 2018, Lebanon had huge protests and and demonstrations and revolutions asking for a reformation of the government, and that to me feels like like a, a resurgence of what we might have learned from that war. That we need something different. Um, That's that's how I'm relating to it now, but it's different than when I wrote it. And then, uh, yeah, the play keeps taking a different life every time I I revisit it. And so, I guess, uh, talk about the cast members you have for the play. Yeah. Um. Uh. Right now we have so it's a four person play. Yeah. I'm acting in in the role of Rami and Nasib, the father and the son. Um. And we have um. A actor from Toronto, Ryan Abdullah Hooper, who is Iranian, um, playing the role of the drag queen, and we have uh, Sepadar Yagani Farid. Um, she's playing Muna, the the sister character, and we have uh, Fensan Duali, who is playing uh, Yara. Um, and it, most uh, two of them are local actors. Um, Ryan's from Toronto. I'm from Alberta. I'm I'm from Edmonton. Um, And I, I haven't worked with any of them before, but they they were they're outstanding. They're exciting. I'm so eager to get in the room with them next week. We start rehearsals, and uh, their their auditions were just outstanding. And so um, I think everybody's coming in with a with a familiarity to the context, even if it's not an immediate familiarity. You know, when we're staging a play about so specific about Beirut, about Lebanon, um, it can be uh, challenging to, to cast it. In in a exact way, and so you know the director uh, Jenna Rogers has a lot of literacy and equity and and um, in uh, equitable hiring, equitable working structures, in anti oppression and anti racism practice, and so I, I trust her to guide our group, even if we're not all Lebanese. Fulzan is Arab. She's Sudanese, and Sepadar and Ryan are Iranian, and and I trust that she's able to. We're all adjacent culturally, you know, and so there's a way that we can move through that that's anti-oppressive, that's anti-racist, and that honors the story and honors the expertise of the actors that are coming in as well. Okay, and I guess、uh, since you're going into rehearsal,、um, what will it be like to be in the same room together doing the play? Well, I mean, every rehearsal is its own thing, and so I, I, I'm. 
excited to have Jenna leading the room. I think she's one of the most exceptional directors in Canada, and we're really lucky to have her. And I think that um, I, I anticipate that it'll be it'll be uh, intense, and it'll be quick, and it'll be uh, like a like a tight rehearsal. We have a, we have short time to rehearse, and and uh, it's just gonna. I, I also think it'll be a lot of fun. It'll be a lot of fun. I mean, it's not it's not often you have an opportunity to get together in a room of Middle Eastern artists and on a play that's entirely Middle Eastern. Um, to to get together in this capacity. So I I think it'll be intimate and it'll be exciting and and like probably full of lots of laughs and goofing around is what I anticipate. And so uh, what what, uh, work did you do previous to this play? Yeah, I mean, uh, this play, I, I had done it. It was the last play of mine that I had written and staged independently before the pandemic in 2019 at the Edmonton Fringe. Um, We had a staging of it, an independent production. Um, But since then, like since the pandemic, I've done, I've done a collective creation piece with Azimuth Theater in Edmonton called All That Binds Us. I've been lucky to work on several audio plays, a new play of mine that I've been developing called The Hooves Belong to the Deer. It just had an audio run in Toronto. I mean, I mean, from a Toronto company, it was online. Um, and right now I'm performing in storybook theaters, Descendants, uh, the Disney's Descendants musical. So that, that closes next week as I start rehearsals for the Green Line. Okay. And what was it like to explore the queer aspect to the story? I mean, it was so. It was like um, equally as necessary as the the. I mean, my queerness is not separate from my Arabness, and so I I love that I have the opportunity to share what that what that experience is like, and to kind of emotionally archive what that experience is like in this play. For me, queerness is is definitely the through line of the story. And it relates to how our ethnicity, it relates to the war, it relates to intergenerational memory, but it's kind of everywhere in the air. It's, un, it's undeniably in the air of the play, and it has to be. And that's just my, that's my lens. That's my story. I can't write outside of a queer narrative. I, I, I am queer, and, and that's, um, it, it would be kind of strange if I wrote a play about four straight Arabs. It would just be absurd. It would be like a really... Um, uh, not like a, just like a not a not a not an authentic exploration in some ways, you know. I don't think everything has to be queer that I write, but I certainly think that I could write queer Arab characters for the rest of my life, and it would still not be enough representation. <laughs> it's such a such an underlooked um, sense of humanity. Yeah, um, it's not often that it gets uh, portrayed. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah. And and so, how do you anticipate the audience receiving the play? If... Yeah, I mean, at the core, at the core of what I do, I have to share something very intimate and very honest. But at the core of it, you you unlock a shared humanity. And so, you know, certainly, I hope queer Arabs see this play. I hope queer BIPOC people see this play. I hope queer people see this play. But I also know that straight cis people of all walks of life can see this play and can find a shared humanity. You know, at its core, it's about it's about family and love and loss and and um, 
you know, as we're watching everything in the world right now happening, Europe, Europe, particularly in Europe, in Ukraine and Russia, we're seeing like, no, none of us are exempt from this, this awful impulse of war. And, and, and people will relate, I hope, to that notion of this love for land, of this attachment, of this intergenerational memory, even as we are looking from Canada onto our homelands. What does that mean? And, um, uh, and, and, and at some level, I always hope that my, my work is humanizing, you know, as you said, this underrepresented experience that people can say, oh, a queer Arab, it's not, it's not uh, absurd. It's not absurd. It's just a, 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 part of, a part of many expressions in the world, you know? Okay. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, you could just um, head over to Downstage Theater's website and you can buy tickets there. And we run from March 31st to April 9th. Um, yeah, that's it. All right. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, it's Jenny again. That was my conversation with actor and playwright Makram Ayashi about the play The Green Line. It looks at intergenerational memory as related to the Lebanese Civil War. The play runs March 31st to April 9th in Calgary. Visit downstage.ca for more information and tickets. Now here's co-host Nathan Taylor. Thanks, Jenny. I just want folks to know that everything in this segment can be found for free at the Internet Archive or on YouTube. We'll put up the links on the ArtsLink section at cgsw.com. Hi, this is Nathan Taylor for ArtsLink. I thought I'd take another shot at doing a show about things that you might find interesting and which don't cost much money, and that you might not know about. To start off this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the hellish state of things in this new plague era, and recommend a film that covers loneliness, isolation, and madness that you can watch for free on YouTube. From 1975, The Noah. In black and white, we watch a covered dinghy wash up on a Pacific beach. Out gets a weathered G.I., we are put at ease that there is no forthcoming violence during the seeming invasion because the G.I. is seen unloading his golf clubs. The Noah is a last man alive on Earth story. It's the only film written and directed by Daniel Borla and quite the take on the single-person film concept. Settling in an abandoned military installation on the beach, the G.I. quickly squares himself away, then tries to relax. The war is quite over by now. Before too long, though, Noah loses his grip on reality and begins to populate his desolate world with imaginary friends. This will be your bunk. Right over mine. Keep the area clean. Keep your nose out of trouble. Reveille at 0600 hours. Morning chow at 0730. And taps at 2100 hours. Reveille. Chow. Taps. You may not like it, my boy, but you have just joined this man's army. Wild. And how. This would be Robert Strauss's final role, and as Noah, we see him continually create, then lose a utopia within his own mind. He is the only actor on screen, but the film is populated with hundreds of phantom voices, some who, unusually, have conversations with each other when Noah is elsewhere on the island. 
The film becomes more abstract as it progresses, showing the Noah's struggle to keep his dream from spiraling out of control, and he tries a couple of things that would seem to make sense, like instead of creating friends out of whole cloth, which led to conflict from them having their own personalities, he instead becomes a schoolmaster, raising a whole invisible class from the ABCs through economics to graduation. I'm sure that you'll all do well, as long as you bear in mind the customer is always right, time is money, business is business, but mind your own business, and crime does not pay. But it's very hard to keep order in a dream, and in the Noah, sounds and images become more speedy and chaotic. The imaginary people with their inner lives and thoughts, all constructed by Noah, give way to a wall of sound. Speeches from JFK and other histories that literally no one else is around to remember anymore. I will admit that the film became somewhat exhausting due to the simple, repetitive nature of Noah the man. He is literally the drunk encountered in a bar complaining about how much money the army owes him. But what to do when this person literally created you to keep him company? Hopefully, he made you an enthusiastic listener. There have been interesting films with only one person on screen before, but I've never seen one done quite in this way. So if you're in the mood for a unique flick about the end of the world right now, you can find it for free on YouTube. The Noah from 1975. One of the great pleasures of poking around the internet archive, archive.org, is coming across great swaths of content without even looking for them. I don't know which one I came across first, but I'm happy to report that you can watch nearly the entirety of the works of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson on there. Best known for the use of, quote, super marionation, they created an entirely unique run of television series in the 1960s that combined puppetry with intricate scale models and increasingly real explosions and increasingly real people working as body doubles. There's plenty online you can read about on the work of these magnificent Andersons, so I thought I'd just take a few minutes to bring attention to some things I enjoyed discovering for myself when watching these shows. I was intrigued to find the later efforts, such as Joe 90 and The Secret Service, and after giving them a go, they represent a very impressive leap from the dummies uh, you might be used to seeing on the Thunderbirds. Indeed, if you start with the first super marionation show, Supercar, the puppets are extremely cartoonish, and you can see where they progressed to the more human-like designs of the Thunderbirds characters. By the end of the 60s, with Joe 90 and the Secret Service, the puppets look fantastic, and the more frequent use of body doubles actually gave me some uncanny valling feelings in some of the sequences. I mean, they really do a lot of cutting between humans and puppets. I'd like to play some clips from Joe 90, in the pilot episode, there's this little bit that sums up the main idea for the series and also gets tapped into, uh, I'm sure, the rich vein of James Bond crazy kids England was full of. Now listen, Joe. WIN has provided you with some specially made equipment. First, a pair of glasses. Built in are the electrodes that your father normally connects to your temples, that enable you to use the knowledge that's been transferred. Without them, you'll be Joe. But when you're wearing them, you'll have all the knowledge and experience of a Russian jet pilot. Next, a pistol, specially made for you. It's small, light, and will fire 200 times without reloading. This may seem a strange thing to say to WIN's most special agent, but 
We have a long journey tomorrow, and I think you ought to be getting to bed. What, now? Yes, now. Thanks, Uncle Sam, for the glasses and the gun and that other thing. I mean, is that awesome for a nine-year-old or what? And with an approving guardian looking on. Well, in one of the moments that propelled this kitty show to high art for me was this exchange right at the end of the pilot. In this two-minute clip, you'll hear one narrative carpet being pulled out from under us and two really abrupt changes in tone, although I think only one was deliberate. Also, I must say that the use of overlapping, echoing voices is paired with a series of still images that I'm sure I've seen ripped off in another adults argue around a child scene in a movie somewhere. And so, Professor McLean... That was the sort of operation that could be handled by your boy Joe with the assistance of the Big Rat. Of course, we all know there is no such aircraft as the MiG-242, and indeed there is no conflict between Soviet Russia and the West. I simply made up that little story to illustrate the sort of thing Joe could do to help us, if we had your approval. No, no, no! Professor McLean, you really expect me to... Dad, you've got to let me do it! Keep out of this, Joe. Go on, son. Now, look, Max, now look, you look, Mr. Weston. Although Joe is not my real son... Because we know of Mary died, that boy has meant more to me than... we know all that. No boy ever had a better father. You expect me to risk his life. Just try to see our side. It's out of the question. Professor McLean, the opportunity's here to prevent war. find someone else. To save human life. Joe's life comes Make new discoveries. Just hold it, will you? Think of the potential, Mac. But Joe is so young. You won't regret it, Mac. I hope not, Sam. I hope not. Thanks. Joe! Can I do it, Dad? Can I work with Uncle Sam? Oh, I suppose so. If you're sure you want to. But don't come crying to me if you get hurt. The Secret Service would be the final supermarionation effort from Gary Anderson, who had switched to, quote, super macromation for his 1980s puppet series Terrorhawks, which kind of looks like a sci-fi spitting image. The show deked me out a bit by showing the lead character as a full-on human before switching to puppetry, which makes sense after doing some research and finding out that the gently eccentric pastor-slash-super-spy was played by comedian Stanley Unwin known for his made-up wordplay and language, Unwinese, which is inserted into the scripts to give the unassuming pastor a chance to confuse his way out of trouble. Anyways, not knowing who Stanley Unwin is won't ruin your enjoyment of this show. I think it's a technical marvel, personally. That being said, the show's central concept of a super-spy pastor can get annoying. I mean, he's an actual pastor, so even during action scenes, everyone's shouting the word father a lot. I was also surprised to find the theme song for Secret Service to sound just like the Swingle Singers. And why not? For a show that features such incongruity as a pastor spy who drives a Model T, why not have this as your theme song?
In actuality, the Swingle Singers did record the theme song, but wanted more money than Anderson was willing to pay for international rights. So, to get that ersatz Swingle singing sound, he got the same people who did the theme for his other series, Supercar, and Stingray. On that note, I'd like to change gears a bit, and take a moment to hype the work of Barry Gray, who wrote the music for these shows. Here's the one most people might know, the beginning of The Thunderbirds. Five, four, three, two, one. Thunderbirds are go. Those swirling, desperate strings paired with frantic bongos is an interesting choice that Gray uses throughout his work for the Andersons. Stand by for action! We are about to launch Stingray! Anything can happen in the next half hour. One thing I like about the shows uh, is how much music plays into it, both plot-wise and just for fun. We see the way pirate radio is done in the future by actually launching yourself into space to spin tracks from orbit. We have a song, That Dangerous Game, being central to a mysterious sabotage story. And in this clip, they wanted a wordless spy sequence to play out and ordered up a pretty rockin' tune from Barry. I particularly like this one because... You've seen this kind of scene a million times, and it's not that hard to imagine how it plays out. An intruder sneaks in and kills a sentry in order to steal the plot device for the episode. The music peaks, and we hear the fatal gunshot. Sorry, all six gunshots. This is a show for children, and I'm sure even Ernst Stavro Blofeld himself would consider that a bit much. So do please check out the nearly complete works of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson, which can be found on the Internet Archive. For now, at least. That's it for Artslink for the month of April. 
talk to you again next month. Okay, uh, Jeff Tweedy, station ID for CJSW, take one. Hi, this is Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, and you're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Okay, started off pretty good. Good start. Just kind of tailed off on the end there, Jeff. Maybe one more time. A little more a little more yabba-dabba-doo. Okay, here we go. You're listening to CJSW. Okay, so, 90- sorry, Jeff. I'm just going to cut you off there. Just a little more zing, a little more, a little more snap there, Sparky. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Okay, uh, you know, we're on the clock here, Jeff. Just one more time. All the passion you got right right deep down in your soul. Make it sound like you you actually have been out of bed for quite a while now. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Well, now, man.